going on, Anesthesia Nerds? Have I got a really cool episode for you, uh, especially, especially if you deal with dogs that potentially have osteoarthritis or pain related to that, uh, which we probably all see in uh, veterinary practice. Today's guest is none other than Dr. Matt Brunke. If you have been to any veterinary conference in the past like five years and seen anything on the rehabilitation or pain management track, you have probably seen Dr. Brunke speak. Uh, he is not only a veterinarian, he is also a diplomate of the ACVSMR. He is a CCRP. He is a CVPP, a CVA, a CCMT. He is a sports and medicine rehabilitation specialist. He works down in Virginia at the Veterinary Surgical Center. He is an author. He is a lecturer and educator. So please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Matt Frunke. Well, thanks. It's great to be here with everybody. Okay. You have a lot of letters after your name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's very uh, cool, but also very intimidating. Uh, only because I am a perpetual student. I keep going forward because medicine doesn't stop. So I feel like imposter syndrome from jump, right? Like I have to keep up with what's there and keep working and helping everybody and keep helping myself to keep learning. So that's where all the letters keep coming from is just that want to keep getting things better. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I appreciate that. I always say, like, if I won the lottery, I would just be a perpetual student. Like, I would just collect degrees. I mean, like, I would just get a degree. Whatever. Astrophysics? Sure. Why not? Like, let me learn about it. I would like to learn about as many things as possible. Um, right now, it's just, you know, time management. So <laughs> kudos to you for all of the certifications. All right. So first thing, a little bit light. We're going to jump into a case in a minute. But first, I did read in your bio um, that you went to undergrad at Cornell. You're a native mm -hmm. New Yorker. Yeah. Okay. But now you're living down in Virginia. Mm -hmm. My hard hitting question to you is, do you ever just miss the bagels? Um, What's I the bagel situation in Virginia? The bagel situation is, is, is it's northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. So it's it's good. But I will admit, I have my brother ship me frozen bagels and Bialys <laughs> yes, from yes. Manhattan yeah. on a somewhat regular basis. So I get the best of both worlds. Yes, definitely. Yeah, there are some things that you there are some foods that you just you just cannot replicate in other places. And I don't care what anybody says. Whatever you're serving in Nashville, Tennessee, or in San Diego, California, I am sorry, it is not a Philly cheesesteak, okay? You don't put uh, Swiss cheese on a Philly cheesesteak. We don't serve it with a side of au jus. That's not a thing, people, okay? If you want a Philly cheesesteak, uh, come see me uh, if you're coming to AVMA in a couple of weeks. I'll hook you up on where to get a good Philly cheesesteak. But yeah, certainly there are some things that you just can't get. And I have had a delicious, perfect, chewy New York bagel and even the ones that advertise as like New York bagels, I'm sorry, if we're in Jackson, Michigan, and you're serving New York bagels, it's just not the same thing because it's the water, right? It is. Water is different. Water's different. Yeah, unless you're transporting that water across state lines. Right. But there's still a little bit of that New York tude that, that goes into every well, bagel that gets made. And, and that's just a little bit of, of shared love. You know, yeah. and that's what that is. Yes, yeah, I agree there. All right, good. 
now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about today's case. Um, and I'm going to give you something that hits close to home. I'm actually going to give you a case that's my dad's dog. Um, I know people who have listened to the podcast before know my frustration when my dad called me and told me that he was getting a new puppy and it was a silver lab. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh, and I know you guys are all shocked that like months later he called me and was like, this dog is crazy. And I was like, yeah, dad, you picked like the two most hyperactive dogs. He was like, we have to take it on miles long walks every day. Like, yes. Yes, dad, you will forever. So enjoy. Uh, yeah, the dog's like perpetually on trazodone and all this stuff. Um, and, you know, my dad is uh, he lives in rural Michigan. He is a mechanic. Um, I To say that money is an issue is probably an understatement. And the dog now is having some elbow issues. And they went to the veterinarian that is out by them and got diagnosed with some elbow dysplasia, potentially, I think, some some osteoarthritis starting up there. She's only three years old, by the way. So it's not like she's a, a 10 year old pup, but she's still having some discomfort. And I'm going to tell you right now, my dad is not going to do surgery. He is not going to do an implant. He's not going to do scope. So in your hands, if a client came in with this type of animal, this patient presentation and they cannot do surgery just financially we can't afford surgery what are some medical modalities what's out there right now that we can still give this dog a decent quality of life without going under the knife yeah and that doesn't matter if that's michigan that's new york city that's philly that's dc that's everywhere right that's that's global um so we all have those and i think what we always try to do is if we could backpedal in time, we'd say, you know what, go get every pet insured because then, hey, if you've got the coverage, do we have a little bit more flexibility? Um, and we still have lots of good things that we've had for a long time to manage arthritis, right? Because we manage it. We don't cure it short of, right? It's with elbows, not that many clinics in the country do elbow replacements. So we're never curing this disease. We're always managing it. Um, we have our fundamentals, right? Everybody's like, okay, what do you mean? Well, yeah, we can reach for NSAIDs. But do we want a three-year-old dog on everyday NSAIDs for the next 10 to 12 years? They're safe. They're wonderful. They're great. Don't get me wrong. But we all know about idiosyncratic reactions, right? It's not just that they're tasty and flavorful and the dog eats the whole bottle. There's your acute mm -hmm. toxicity. But it's, you know, they could have a sensitivity to it later on. Or maybe they develop a disease later on in life where they just can't take it. I have dogs come in all the time. Medicine calls me and they're like, so we've got this Addisonian who lives on Pred who has <laughs> crippling elbows. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. Challenge accepted. So we can get into pills and management, but NSAIDs are still our cornerstone. Our adjuncts, the only adjunct we have any validation research to back up supporting for use is amantadine. So if you're out there and you're like, wait a minute, how come he didn't say gabapentin? Um, because there is zero research to support its use. And we believe in anecdotal, don't get me wrong, we know research always, we always need more research. But amantadine, which is a paper done out of NC State a couple of years ago through Dr. Denny Marcel and Little and Duncan LaSalle's, they show that amantadine in conjunction with an NSAID help dial down the OA pain. So that's one. GABA, maybe, 
But I mean, sure, if the dog sleeps more, then yeah, it won't limp as much, but that's not why we get dogs. Joint supplements, Tasha, you and I could talk for an hour. I mean, we could go back yeah. and forth on evidence and we should, because there's a bunch of new ones coming out and new research on both sides of the aisle to help those, to help clear that up. But to me, nothing replaces a lean body condition score and regular walks. Because if you're overweight, if that dog's overweight, not only is gravity pulling them down, putting more weight on those stressful joints, but remember that fat releases cytokines, right? It's not inert. Fat releases little tiny enzymes that actually eat cartilage 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So for me, when I see these, I'm like, look, I'm going to save you money. Feed your dog less, right? Get them lean to the point when you walk them down the street, you, somebody, your neighbor or your friend goes, hey, your dog's kind of skinny. And you're like, yeah, my vet team wants it that way. My OA team. And I talk about my OA team a lot. Maybe we'll talk about, I think we'll talk about this a little bit. The OA team is the pet parent, the veterinarian, the veterinary technicians, all the assistants. There is a team approach to how we manage these cases. So I'm like, look, let's get them lean. Let's feed them less. And then fetch is not an exercise. Okay. Fetch actually makes all those worse. If you play it repetitively, wears them out. So when in doubt, go for a nice long walk if they can, right? With humidity and Mm-hmm. and heat stroke and all those other things, but you nothing replaces being lean and getting some good, regular, low-impact exercise for OA patients. That, yeah. That's where I start them all. When you're talking about low-impact exercises, where do, do activities like um, swimming fit in there? Because I know with my dad having retrievers, he does take them to the like lake and the river a lot. Um, is that beneficial? Is that a negative? I know that you know, with hydrotherapy, at least one of the things I remember from my CVPP exam is like the height of the water makes a big difference, right? So talk to me about that. Yeah. And it's true. Like, so I would like them to go, hey, instead of driving an hour to go to the water go walk to the water and walk in the water. Okay. Because that paper, like you talked about, I remember that from my CVPP exam as well, right? (laughs) That is dependent on the dog's touch, their feet touching the bottom. Okay, so the buoyancy factor is dependent on their, you know, yes, they're going to be buoyant, but we have research that shows that when dogs are truly swimming, they're flexing their joints. And that's helpful because we get increased range of motion and movement is good, right? Sure, they're flexing them, but think about it, folks, right? I know you're, maybe you're listening to this in the car or you're listening to this. If you're listening to this in the car, don't do this right now. But if you're at work or you're home, I want you to imagine like you are a dog doggy paddling. And make those motions with your arms, okay? That is not an effective method of transportation, okay? So swimming, helpful to get some mental exercise, get them out and doing stuff. But water walking, whether that's an underwater treadmill or walking in a safe environment by a river or or a lake, shore walking, that's where we can get it because now – that pet is in extension. And those limbs, think about, go back to your own limbs for a second. If you're a dog, right, you have to fight gravity. So you need your triceps to be good. You need your quads to be good. And that's how you can extend those joints because now, now they can get stronger. Right Now they can walk longer. There's less impact on their body. So I always like them to go water walking 
swimming, you can't control it as much is the honest answer. And it just doesn't help as much. Talk to me about some other modalities besides NSAIDs. You know, there's so many things oh. out there. Um, I, you know, when, again, when I had this conversation with my dad, some things that came to mind were, you know, okay, Rimadil, but then, yeah, long-term Rimadil. So then I was like, oh, maybe he could be like an Adequan injection dog since, you know, she's young or maybe some mm -hmm. PRP or even, you know, the new kid on the block, right? The Synovitin. So talk to us about those things and, uh, how do they fit together? Would you, is this, are these modalities you do all at the same time, plus, minus, et cetera? All right, like, do we throw the kitchen sink at them? Right. The, the answer on that one is no. Yes. Because especially if we're on a budget, like, oh, let's throw everything at them and we don't know what made them better, so let's keep them on all of it. And and that's not going to work. And, and we know, even within NSAIDs, we have a couple of different good options because not everybody responds to the same NSAIDs. So, I'm going to back that. That's a multimodal approach. We talk about that in, in anesthesia, multimodal anesthesia analgesia, but also in OA management. So that can be all those different aspects. But I'm going to back that up one step further and say we have to get to a, an understanding of what our actual diagnosis is. And I know this is challenging. I did GP for a decade. I get it when you guys are when we're quadruple booked and with walk in block cats. The last thing you want to really talk about is getting some rads on the crickety old lab or the young lab. But remember, team, none of us were born on Krypton. Okay. None of us have x-ray vision. And so what you think is OA and feels like OA, 95% of the time is going to be OA. But I get about one case a month that is arthritis in air quotes. And I get it because maybe the client didn't have that engagement with you as a team in primary care and they get to us in specialty and they're like, yeah, let's go do all the imaging and or whatever it may be. But get imaging, because if things aren't working, 95 percent of the time it's arthritis, 5 percent of the time it's something else. And about once a month, I get a case of arthritis that's actually an osteosarc or a histiocytic sarcoma with METs. And I have we're done because like, they've been they've been in primary care for four, five, six months. They have a two month waiting list sometimes to get to us in specialty. So, you know, it back that bus up, get your diagnosis. Okay? You don't have to do it every time on the first visit, but give them a couple of weeks of NSAIDs. And if they don't get better or you need to refill and you're rechecking that blood work, you know what? Let's sedate. Let's get some good orthogonal rads. Let's get that X-ray vision that we don't have since we weren't born on Krypton and know what we're dealing with so we can grade it. Because if we can grade that OA between our clinical exam and some RADs or sure CT would be nice or other stuff, now I can go to my toolbox and I go, all right, is this really mild? Okay, let me pull out these things. Oh, this is pretty severe, not just on RADs, but clinically. Gee, am I gonna put something in that's, that's kind of weak sauce into this versus maybe we should save up? So does, does that make sense? I think for everybody, we really have to understand where we're coming from or know what we can go get to help. Yeah, certainly. And I just want to sidebar here and let uh, everybody, and hopefully everybody caught that when uh, Dr. Brunke said before radiographs, sedate. Let me tell you, nothing is going to make your technician team 
dislike the day more than having to restrain a 88 pound silver effing lab for elbow rads. My God, sedate them, sedate them, sedate them. And if we, if let me tell you, if as the vet, if you come to me and you say, hey, I want some sedated radiographs, man, like I'll buy you. What do you want for lunch? Grilled cheese? I got it. Like we're, we're let's do it because I, I love it. I love it. If you come to me and you say, you know what? Can you try without sedation? <laughs> and every technician listening to this right now has done the try without sedation. And then 10 minutes later, after getting our ass kicked in radiology, we're like, no, we need drugs. Think about that. You're absolutely right, right? We need to protect everybody. We need to protect ourselves from following radiation rules and, and ocean, absolutely. We also need to protect the patient, okay? If you hurt, are you going to lay on a table in a strange environment and let somebody pin you to a table and have to hold perfectly still to get a decent film? No. Yeah. Okay. Also for the team, okay, for everybody, because look, you're feeling it. You, Tosh, when you're putting catheters and you're feeling that wrist or you're feeling the elbow, you're like, um, I know it's here for a GDV, but we should follow up on this horrific elbow later on, right? Like you're feeling these. The sedated reason is not only for the RADs, for the patient and for the team, it's a chance for us as clinicians, for all of us to feel that and get a better understanding. And that's more of a fear-free approach too, right? Like why crank on that? We can get a better understanding. Is that elbow really crunchy, shoulder, maybe the biceps is, is torn, but the dog's really painful. And then I know we're here, we're gonna talk about this, it's a silver lab, so if the front end's bad, it's going to need a TPLO at some point. <laughs> so sedated rads for your stifle workups are critical. And, and we'll, here's the last part of that sidebar. There was a really cool paper uh, done at, up at, I think it was University of Wisconsin. Dogs that came in for a suspected cruciate tear that had no mechanical instability awake, 50% of them had mechanical instability under sedation anesthesia which means those ones that you're kind of like managing as partial tears, half of them should just go straight to the OR. So sedate, get good films, be fear-free and, and safe for the whole team and the patient and nail your diagnosis. Now you're doing the best medicine possible, whether that's in NYC or out, you know, further reaches of the universe. Yeah, certainly. All right, so talk to me about some of these different modalities. Uh, I think I, I was telling you before we got started, I used to work with a doctor who, uh, he was a surgeon, great, great guy. Shout out to Dave Puerto, fantastic surgeon. And he was, uh, I remember when PRP became like a yeah. thing and he was like, yes, I love it. Let's start it. And he had us text, you know, he taught us you know, how to, you know, spin the cells and we were doing the injections mm -hmm. with him and, I remember a lot of elbows with that. Um, so, yeah. and then uh, again, I know that right now um, I work relief at Penn. I was uh, in at Penn and I saw all these people huddled around this one dog and everybody, I was like, oh, what's going on in the treatment room? And turns out they were uh, injecting this dog with Synovitin and it was like a big, exciting thing. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, wait. Yeah, Matt Frankie does that all the time. Like, what's, uh, <laughs> what's up with that? So I think those are kind of two modalities that are out there that I don't, think a lot of, for the most part, a lot of GPs are utilizing. I do think that maybe as it gets more popular and as people gain more experience with it, I, I'm excited to see where it goes. But specifically, you know, selfishly, because I'm talking about my dad's dog and I want to give him some answers. 
yeah. what he can ask his veterinarian, uh, where do those things fall in a case like this? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's critical, right? Because if, if it's, especially if it's just a unilateral elbow, but let's say in your dad's dog, is it both elbows in his lap? I don't, I'm going to be honest. I stopped listening after, you know, because like, <laughs> let me tell you, this dog has had so many problems. <laughs> that's fair. So let's assume it's just one, which is only about 40% of the cases. Interestingly enough, like elbow dysplasia is about 66 percent bilateral cases which is crazy but let's say that it's just one or even if it is both who cares right if it's just the elbows why are we tackling systemic approaches when we can do targeted therapy so targeted therapy could be external right that can be laser shockwave all those types of things but we can also do targeted internal approaches and that's what you were leading that's i'm going to bring that to right is why challenge the liver all the time with an NSAID? Why challenge the GI? Why do all this other stuff if we can just get to the root of the problem? Um, so for me as a specialist, but even as a GP, like we can do joint injections. Our equine colleagues do them for decades. I've had joint injections myself because I broke myself studying for boards. That's a fun story. Mm. It's not, I just have horrible posture when I study. Yeah. <laughs> but like we should be doing targeted approaches. So joint injections, if you've tapped joints to rule out IMPA, you've done 90% of this. You just need to inject something as a therapeutic. So PRP, platelet-rich plasma, yes, right? Cool. The hard part is with that, there's like six or eight different companies that make six or eight different products on the market and reading the literature gets into the weeds fast because patient follow-up is hard. The, are we making leukocyte-rich PRP? Are we making leukocyte-poor PRP? Are we? Do we need a 1.5 increase of both baseline, which I'll talk about in a quick second, or do we need something like four to, we think it's probably four to six-fold above peripheral platelet counts, but we know that like 10 to 12-fold actually causes pain. And you're like, uh-oh, wait a minute, this sounds way over my head. I probably need to send off to a university to make PRP. No. If you have an in-house CBC machine, you can figure out what type of PRP you're making. Because you draw blood that morning, you get that patient's CBC, then you draw your blood for your PRP and you make it, and then you take a tiny little drop of that PRP and you run it back through that CBC machine, and you're going to get an idea, you're going to know exactly, hey, we went... We doubled our platelets. We tripled our platelets. Um, what else is in there? There's some crazy work too that actually shows on both the human side and the equine side, litter mates, right? Whether it's brother, sister, or, or even horses, even if you have the exact same genes, not everyone's platelets concentrate. There's something really cool about that. So we have to understand that some of us aren't just gonna be good PRPs, but PRP is great because it triggers all the normal inflammatory healing. So it brings in those cytokines, those interleukins, those VEGFs to be like, hey, calm down this nasty itis, right? Because anything that's inflammatory is an itis, so arthritis, calm it down. But we're not out there to like, it's not like a starfish where we're like growing a new leg for this thing, right? So we can use PRP. Um, we can combine it with hyaluronic acid, which is pretty cool. So that gives us some viscosity and works on a microscopic level too. Um, 
HA alone in dogs is an intraarticular injection. Research shows that it does bupkis. So I don't bother with HA alone. Mm -hmm. PRP, PRPHA. And if that's not in the wheelhouse for either the practice or for the client, triamcinolone and or methylpred, right? Not together, but you can always put a, cort a corticosteroid in there. I usually use Trium if they're much younger. I try to save the methylpred, the depot for older dogs because it does cause cartilage damage. Mm -hmm. um, but it can make, you know, like, wait a minute. Well, if it's arthritis and we cause more <laughs> cartilage damage, how do we help it? And here's kind of the, the, the paradigm swing that I'm going to drop right here on, on the podcast is <laughs> arthritis is not a cartilage disease. It's a synovial disease. Okay. The synovium is what bathes that cartilage, makes all those good nutrients, provides all that stuff. And when the synovium gets damaged, that's when that whole joint falls apart. Mm -hmm. So for me, like PRP could be a good option. Studies go out about like six months, pretty good. Stem cells, again, four or five different companies out there. Uh, lots of challenges, probably a lot more cost, to be honest. Um, you have to collect usually falciform fat to make stem cells. So now you're mm -hmm. anesthetizing them, waking them up, waiting a couple of weeks and then processing it. Not a bad option at all. I think we need more research on it. Um, harder for me to tell those those on any patient. I'm like, oh, let me go, even if I could do it laparoscopically, like let me go in and get some falciform and give you a, a linear incision that you then have to recover from. Because now right, your core muscles are a little disrupted for a couple of weeks. That doesn't help. Um, but then, so this is what I was battling the last five, seven years. I was like, what else can we inject? And then Synovitin came along just as the pandemic broke. But so it took me a while to, to learn about it and get it incorporated. But this is the first time we had in canine literature that they had ever done 12 month long OA studies. And that's what got my attention first. I was like, wait a minute, somebody looked at this for a whole year. Okay, what you got my attention, what did it do? And the synovitin attacks the synovial inflammation. Because um, when you tap a joint, right, we, we send it out, we culture it, um, we send it out for joint fluid analysis, and we're like, oh, it doesn't have nasty uh, neutrophils in it, it doesn't have bacteria, so it's not septic, and we didn't see cancer. But it's still not normal fluid, it's all full of macrophages. And so what synovitin does is it binds, the macrophages engulf the synovitin molecules, and that winds up calming down the synovial membrane, because now we're not eating apart everything all the time. Um, it's super cool stuff. Um, we started using it in our practice um, about a year and a half ago, and I've inject my team and I, we've injected 94 patients. This coming week will be patients 94. So in you know less than 18 months, we're we're using it a ton. It's become my go-to. Um, it's a whole different class of therapy, though. You know, it's still intraarticular. It's medical radiotherapy. Uh, yeah, I was reading about this. So um, it is a novel radioisotope. So uh, yeah, talk to me about that because I think the big group uh, around the dog at Penn, you know, there was this you know chatter of 
oh, is it is it radioactive? Do the people have to you know take precautions? You know, you know how you do with the 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 yep. cats and the uh, radioactive treatment for the thyroid cats, and then yep. they they you know you have to worry about their urine and defecations and and people handling it, and are there pregnant people in the house and all that? So talk to me about the fact that this is a uh, a novel radioisotope. Yeah, and that's it's a new thing for us in vet med because we have, like you said, our experience in small animal with with this type of stuff would be I one thirty one for cats, where like I said, exactly it gets into their pee, their poop. We got to be super careful. That's not the case. Synovatin stays. It's a large enough molecule that the only thing that can move it out of the joint is the macrophages. And those macrophages keep getting, they're dying from apoptosis from exposure to low level conversion electron therapy. So it, it's not like we're not walloping the joint like we, like oncology does when they do have to do radonc procedures. No, we're not, we're not anywhere near that level with, you're not near like, you know, technetium 99 for bone scans in, in horses and sometimes in dogs and cats. We're not at that either, and we're not at I-131. It's strictly a targeted radionuclide. And the cool thing is about it is it's not new to medicine. They've done it in Germany in people for 25 years with different isotopes um, for rheumatoid arthritis, for degenerative OA. And so that's already the literature is there on looking at it in mouse models, but also literally like on how many times do we get this, Tasha, right? When usually in vet med, we're the ones that like we tried it in dogs. Now we get to try it in people. Mm -hmm. This is the 180. It's already been shown. This type of medical radiotherapy has already been shown to be beneficial in people. Now we get to use that to help our vet med patients. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, it's like the, uh, the, the akin to like Noceda, right? How, they had Xparel for so long in the human side. Yeah. We were like, where's our Xparel? And now we have Noceta and Noceta is wonderful. So, yeah, cool. So I think there's like a lot of, uh, there's definitely a lot of options, uh, especially for a client who could, who can't afford or doesn't want to go to surgery with their pet. Um, just some things that you touched on that I was hoping that we could kind of end with is, you know, obviously you're seeing a lot of pets. You're saying that you're on to your 94th injection of Synovitin. Um, and you're, as you said in a previous statement earlier in the podcast, that sometimes you have a two month waiting list to get in, uh, to see a specialist. And I think with everything that's happening in vet med right now, we are inundated with patients. We are so busy. Um, and I'm personally, uh, as a technician specialist, a real advocate for technician utilization. And I think that that's one thing that I like about the practice that you are part of and even just going to your practice's website. I love the fact that on your staff page, you're like championing the technicians. And I mean, do you know how many, do you know how many veterinary websites say meet the staff and you only meet the doctors and there's no mention of the support staff in what, in any way. And so I really love the fact that you're very uh, pro technician approaching this from a, a team aspect. So uh, as far as making sure that this patient gets good care, that maybe doesn't want to go to surgery and is going to try some of these modalities. Um, where does the technician fit in? Do they do a lot of the initial meetings with the client and the patient? Do they do prep work? Are they doing a lot of your follow-ups? I mean, I'm assuming you can't do it all. And I, I already know you work with Christy Oliver, so she's the badass. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, when when you've got Kirsty, your life is easier. Um, so I I live the posh life for certain, um, and the answer is all of the above. I mean, I have a a, a literal like SWAT team of technicians because I need every one of them. Um, Kirsty, who like you know, like you, a vet technician specialist in in but in rehabilitation. Um, Lynn Nalapa and Ann Lindsay, they're my core rehab practitioners, um, which is great because I can find stuff and then I can pass it off to them. They're all rehab certified. They can all mat- they have their own columns of appointments. They are practitioners. We round, we talk about patients, but they handle it all. They work with our assistants and our CSRs and directly to clients and get all the rehab therapy done. That frees us, my doctors and I, to go diagnose more, to, to you know, run tests, to figure that type of stuff out. Um, so no, I, and the, having Kirsty and, and the team is, is nothing short of, makes my life amazing. Um, and I would not do it without them. Not that I couldn't do it. I can't do it without them, number one. I would not do it without them. Um, they make all that go so we can facilitate those. But also on the other side, like Mark and Leslie, who are my LVTs on procedures and appointments, like they're gutting through all this history stuff. They know exactly what images I have or what I don't have. When we have to do Synovitin, you know, it's not something you just keep on the shelf because it's half-life is 14 days. So we custom order every dose for each patient. Leslie handles that coordination aspect. She coordinates with the owners, making sure we're screening them appropriately. The biggest thing with Synovitin is you usually can't sleep in bed with your pet for two weeks, sometimes longer if it's a little bit of a bigger animal. So maybe it's four or six weeks, but those are pretty rare. But we have to talk about that. And that comes into like, what do we use? Because I've had some owners during the pandemic be like, my dog is sleeping in bed with me every night. And I'm like, cool, we're going to do PRP and HA. You got it. No big deal. Um, so Leslie helps coordinate all of that. And then um, Mark and her, we round as a team every day on procedures. Because as a sports med specialist, I'm basically kind of running a surgery service. I have consult receiving days and I have procedure days where we stack, you know, six, eight procedures per day. None of ours stay overnight. They're all outpatient. And we're doing sedated ortho exams with RADs, we're doing CTs, we're doing joint injections and MSK ultrasounds, and we're getting to the root of the problem, making it feel better. That's what I always do with my target therapy, we make it feel better. And then I pass it off to my other awesome techs to go, okay, I made it feel better. You guys go make it feel stronger. Go make it stronger, go make it, you know, take that whole zoomed out approach of multimodal management. So I don't want to inject these dogs every three months. I don't want them living on NSAIDs every day. If we can get them to get back to being a little bit leaner, build up a little bit of muscle, walk a little more, quality life's better for the pet, quality life's better for the pet parent and their family, quality life's better for my team. You know, we can see those patients that come in, whether they're the the geriatric ones that could barely get out of bed before and now at least have a solid quality of life, or um, because we're in the DC area, like we've worked on some very high-end working canines um, for various federal agencies that have returned to job because of what my team can do. So that to me is like the home run. If we don't have the techs, we got nothing at all. Yeah. I mean, yay. Great. Ooh, are you working on the Biden dogs? 
I can neither I, confirm nor deny who my patients are. I heard they'd be crazy. <laughs> uh, you, you know, the, the the younger, I felt bad for the really, uh, the I older know. one who passed. Um, the, the younger ones, um, <laughs> I think, need some conditioning exercise for Some training, yeah. Yep, um, <laughs> but, or maybe uh, introducing them to foreign diplomats. Yeah, I, I mean, they could they could be maybe working in a, in a different aspect. Um, but like we worked with a bunch of retired um, canines down here because those dogs, like they're usually really well selected. They don't have like elbow dysplasia, um, They but they'll get LS disease. And we mm-hmm. could come back and talk a whole time. I, anesthesia connection, you sedate them, I stick a needle in that, and we don't have to go to surgery most of the time for LS disease. There's a... There's a nice drop drop for another time for another conversation. Yeah. I mean, listen, everybody knows that I love surgery. I love anesthesia. Um, but obviously, you know, again, within my own family, I can see that there are financial limitations and not everybody can just go to surgery. So it's nice to know that there are a lot of options out there to help keep our pets comfortable uh, for the years, especially, you know, in this young dog, you know, what can we do? And again, not that I dislike NSAIDs, a pillar of pain control. But yeah, when I thought about telling my dad, oh, I'll just put her on Rimadol forever, or again, whatever NSAID forever. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. So I love that there are so many different options right now. Well, and that's the thing too, like three is young, but the interesting part is they looked at dogs where they would scope elbows around age three versus purely conservative management small small study like 60 dogs total okay no statistical difference between the two groups so Mm. sometimes not all the time sometimes scoping is not the answer so i go back to our team approach i have six surgeons i'm responsible to okay (laughs) that that is a busy household (laughs) Um, and i love them all but i love when they come to me and they're like this is not surgical. This is not going to be something that we can fix. You take it. And mm-hmm. then we, or we find stuff the reverse where they're like, you know, we really, we just want an, an elbow injection. I'm like, you have a giant OCD lesion. Let me go get one of my surgeons to, to scope that. But it's that communication that, and that informed consent and knowing what we're dealing with. That's where we can get fun. We get the best results. Yeah, certainly. Well, Thank you so much for being a guest and taking the time today to talk about this. Um, I like to geek out on some of these newer modalities. I think it's really interesting. Uh, and you heard it here, folks. Make sure you're getting your diagnostics properly. <laughs> you're doing sedated rads to make sure you get the clearest uh, overall picture possible. And utilize your technicians to be part of the team. We want to be utilized. We want to use our brains. Um, we we want to do it all. And, you know, Technician utilization leads to not only greater career satisfaction, but longevity in the field. So please utilize your technicians. Hundred <laughs> percent. We got to be all this together, you know. And I want to leave out. Do you mind if I drop one thing? Oh, I don't want to feel like we, I don't want to feel like we left out feline practitioners out of this. Everything oh, yeah. you and I talked about. Right. We can talk about for cats. We have options from rehab and acupuncture and all sorts of stuff for kitty arthritis. Um, I've even been able to inject cats with synovitin for their elbows. Oh, okay. And like got video of like cats like finally jumping on counters after not jumping on them for a decade. 
Like, so if we work as a team, if we all talk, whether it's at a conference, whether it's on a Facebook group, whether it's whatever, us as a profession on all levels, when we all talk between techs and doctors and everybody, we can make stuff happen. It's just figuring out how to help it and how to get it done. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, if people want to keep up with you or hear you speak next, uh, what do you have coming up? Oh, um, I will be bouncing around a little bit. I um, probably my next big one where I'll be will be the Fetch DVM 360 conference in San Diego. Okay, um, great. The anesthesia in, nerds will also be at the Fetch DVM 360 conference in San Diego. So yay! That'll be a fun one. And then I will be, if anybody in the rehab circle is making it, I will be in Cambridge, England in August for the International Veterinary Rehab Meeting, which will be super fun. Um, so those are my are my big ones for the rest of the year. Um, but always happy to reach out. Um, if anybody's got cases and stuff, um, I can leave you guys some info if anybody wants to reach out to me about stuff. Always happy to help where I can. Yes. So for all of you guys listening in the show notes, we will put a link to Dr. Matt Brunke and how you can find him. And we'll also track down that study where he was talking about the benefits of sedation for your radiographs and diagnosing um, things. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. And we'll put links to the DVM 360 Fetch Conference in San Diego in December. So you can check out either Anesthesia Nerds or Dr. Matt Brunke or both even better get some rehab and some anesthesia information in there. All right. Thank you so much for being a guest today on the podcast. And we'll definitely have you back again to talk more, uh, more pain management stuff. Cool. Take care. Thanks a lot.